0: And I would just remind you, Saturday, the 17th at 6.30, because he has seen a recital over at the Cooper House. Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52 this morning. Isaiah 52. <clears throat> now, we'll read that in just a moment. Um, when, when I worked on a dairy farm uh, back in Pennsylvania, we got the delivery of a cow one day. And, and this was no ordinary cow. The, the owner of the farm had paid a lot of money for it and actually had gone in half ease with another farmer. When the cow showed up, they brought her out of the trailer, and, and I was there that day and, and, and stood her up, and I said, boy, she's beautiful. Yeah. Now, that did not mean that I wanted to date the cow okay but it was the, it was a beautiful cow as far as cows are concerned if you've ever seen the Chevy commercial where you know the guy loads the the bull up on the back of the trailer and I didn't know it was a Chevy commercial till the very end and you know the, the bull is is bulls are you know they're kind of slobbery and 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 the music comes behind and and they, the guy pulls the bull out of the trailer and he kind of looks and you know if you've ever seen cows they they kind of have a tongue long enough that they can lick their own noses. So he comes out of the trailer and looks and licks his own nose and there are a bunch of cows and they kind of go and they lick their own nose. And, and It's a Chevy commercial. I don't know what that has to do with it. okay? But that cow that came off the trailer at the dairy farm was beautiful. Now that's cow beautiful okay? because you can't define that in the same way that you might define beauty in other fashions. Um, Uh, and beauty the definition of beauty in our world is kind of uh, uh, fleeting it goes back and forth in a variety of ways and in different contexts now in John Keats uh, ode on a Grecian urn there's a famous line it says beauty is truth truth is beauty that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know now what does that mean well anybody's an English major can come later and see, give me your opinion, but uh, T.S. Eliot said, well, it's a blight on an otherwise great poem, okay, because they couldn't figure out what it meant. Now, those of you who are mathematicians may not see beauty in the same way. Uh, There's a a mathematician in England who makes it very clear that that beauty is not um, that. Beauty is seen in the theorems and the proofs and the the cold and austere correctness of mathematics. Uh, it didn't strike me as beautiful. Now, those of you who like math might, may get all charged up about that, but it just doesn't strike me as beautiful, okay? Um, when it comes to defining or identifying beauty, our culture has varying views, and they're played out mostly in the differences between men and women because if you didn't know, men and women are different, Okay, I know there have actually been studies on the fact to prove this, that men and women are different. We're obviously, we're different physically, but we're different psychologically and the way we look at things. Now, uh, the features that men consider beautiful in women, and this is just from studies, youth, clear skin, a symmetrical face uh, and body, feminine facial features, an hourglass figure, these preferences span borders, they span cultures, generations meaning they're almost universal in their application as how men see beauty. Okay? Uh, studies also show that body size that's idealized, idealized in a particular culture appears to correspond inversely to the availability of food. Okay? No, wait, when, you, when I say it you understand it better. In cultures like ours where food is plentiful thin women often are seen as beautiful. In cultures where food is scarcer, larger women are often seen as more beautiful. Okay, Now, that, of course, changes. Um, models are no longer like Twiggy. Okay? How many of you remember Twiggy? Okay, good, good. Well, You know, she was like uh, a twig. Okay, it was like she was pretty thin, and, and that was seen as beautiful at one time in our culture. Okay, Now, most women prefer men who are taller than they are, this is from studies, with symmetrical features, but women across cultures also seem to take status, power, and access to resources into account. That's how rich, short, ugly guys get good-looking girls. Okay. So We also understand that in some cultures, things like foot-binding, head-shaping, uh, the regular expansion of lips and ears through piercings and, and larger objects placed in there. Or even the manipulation of the neck through bracelets. If you've seen those uh, where women's necks are, are, are regularly long and they're held up with, with bracelets. Those are seen as beautiful as well. Um, I, uh, I didn't do any of those to our girls. Um, uh, so we, we don't see those things as beauty. Okay? Now the question is, what do we do with that? You know, how should we pursue beauty? Should we just say, this is me, this is what you get, love me as I am, or should we work regularly to conform our physical selves to what society says is beautiful? Hmm. Well, this brings us to beauty as it's defined in scripture. Now, I know it's Mother's Day and there are a lot of passages about mothers, but but I thought so often, beauty in our lives is defined by what we see from, and, and we'll put it in, in, from godly mothers in particular, and, and that kind of sets the tone for us. Well, here in scripture, in the passage that we're going to look at, beauty is really based upon the holiness of God, in his characteristics of holiness, in his character of holiness, and in his holy actions. Now, to most humans and human sensibilities, the qualities listed for us in this passage have no semblance to beauty at all, at all. They would appear quite ugly or repugnant to us. And really, trying to sell this type of beauty in the world is a tough sell. It's a tough sell. It doesn't go well on the front of a magazine. But the beauty that is shown to us in the actions and on the person of the suffering servant That Isaiah talks about is real beauty there is nothing more beautiful than salvation and the one who gave his life for us that we may have it there is nothing and the flip side of that is there is nothing more wretched in the sight of an unbeliever than the one who gave his life for us the one who laid down all that he was and bore upon his person the weight of our sin believers see that as incredibly beautiful non-believers see it as wretched Let's turn to Isaiah 52, and I'll begin reading in verse 13. And if you're able, would you stand with me? We're going to read all of this. Heavenly Father, as we read these words, these beautiful words, sear them into our hearts and consciences that we might understand the beauty that comes in the suffering servant we ask in christ's name amen isaiah 52 verse 13 behold my servant will prosper he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted just as many were astonished at you my people so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men Thus he will sprinkle many nations, kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with rich men in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. "...and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors." This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. And for those of you who were here who were in the confirmation class yesterday, this is the answer to one of those questions about where do we see Christ in the Old Testament... It is here in the servant song, the suffering servant song of Isaiah. There are actually four of these in Isaiah. This is the most well-known, Isaiah, the end of 52 and chapter 53. Now, this book was written about 700 years before the birth of Christ. And for the first 39 chapters, Isaiah writes about judgment. It's the judgment that comes upon the nations surrounding his people and even judgment upon his people themselves, for they have been disobedient. Remember, Isaiah was the prophet to the kings. So he would speak the word of the Lord to the kings. It wasn't like he would whisper the prophecy of God into their ears. He would come to them and say, this is what the Lord says. They were often so disobedient. Flip back a couple pages to Isaiah 39. And the particular prophecy concerning their captivity. Chapter 39 ends with this prophecy saying that uh, basically you're all going off into captivity. It's going to be bad. This is judgment upon you. Isaiah 39, 6. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought There will be peace and truth in many days. He didn't really understand what this meant, that they would be taken away. That captivity began about um, 80 years after Isaiah wrote this, and there were actually three deportations uh, throughout the time. The final one and the most telling one is 586 and the fall of Jerusalem. And the people did not return to Jerusalem for another 70 years. They were held in captivity for that long before any of them returned. Now as you're in 39, look at verse, Look at chapter 40. This is really the turning point of the book of Isaiah. It's the pivot point upon which there has been judgment and judgment and judgment. And now a new message comes. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God, Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Does that, does that ring a bell with anybody who's yet to come? He's the last Old Testament prophet who's also written about in the New Testament, that's John the Baptist, okay, because he comes before Christ. This is the prophecy about John the Baptist. Prepare a way for the Lord, okay? He is coming, and John the Baptist says, I'm not the one. He says it repeatedly. It's not me. I'm not fit to untie his sandals. He who comes after me is greater than me, for I must decrease and he must increase, So after chapter 40 and this mood changes, God speaks about his servant, the servant that is coming. Now there are actually three servants that Isaiah speaks about. The first servant is really the people of Israel and their job to be the the demonstrators of the things of God um, uh, in the world. But the nation as a whole fails miserably and we've seen the judgment that comes upon them. And then in uh, chapters 44, 45, right around there, we have a guy named Cyrus who is mentioned. And he is the Persian leader, the Persian king. And he actually is the one who enables the people to come out of their exile. He makes a decree that will have them return to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the city. But there's one thing to remove people from a place of idol worship And there is another thing to remove the idol worship from their hearts. And neither, and Cyrus just cannot, he's a pagan king, he's not one of the covenant people. He cannot remove their idol worship, the idol worship from their hearts. Another servant is needed who will actually change the hearts of the people of God. So in the final section, chapters 40 really through 66, the end of the book, we have a change of theme That's all about grace and salvation. The final 27 chapters of Isaiah are some of the the richest and most beautiful things that we find in Scripture about salvation. And really, that is the theme of the end of the book, this the second half of the book. It's a single prophecy concerning the salvation that is coming in the Messiah. In the Messiah. Not only deliverance from Babylon, but deliverance from the sin that affects us and challenges us in our hearts. And we see that this is, this is part of the beauty of the holiness of God. Now, the question for us is who will bring this prophesied grace and salvation to the people? Who will bring it? Who is going to provide deliverance? And the answer is the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. The Hebrew word for servant, ebed, is used hundreds and hundreds of times throughout the uh, Old Testament. And it's a word that means a servant or a slave. This one is the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. The one who is devoted completely to the things of the Lord. Who will do the Lord's bidding. Who will do the Lord's business. And who will bring about the salvation of the Lord's people. He is the one who will bring salvation. He is the one who will bring comfort. He is the one who will bring the forgiveness of sins. He is the one who brings this beauty in the sacrifice that covers our sin. There is beauty in his piercing, in his sorrow, and in his death that nothing else really can match. And it's not this physical beauty. It's not this tangible beauty that we think of so often that covers the the covers of the magazines or things like that. There is a beauty that is far beyond that in which the suffering servant delivers. Chapter 52, verse 13. Behold my servant. Behold my servant, my slave. As I said, there are four of these songs and this is the last one beginning in this passage it is the suffering servant our lord the redeemer the savior now the new testament quotes isaiah 53 um, uh, eight verses in isaiah 53 are quoted concerning specific things about jesus christ his coming his life his death his resurrection his ascension they are dealing with the fulfillment of jesus christ Isaiah, whether he understood this was Christ or not, he understood that a servant of the Lord would come. This is what he would do. He would bear our griefs, our sorrows he would carry. The list goes on and on. You can read it. He knew he would come. And it would be much more of a delivery than just coming out of Babylon, but it was a delivery for an entire people from the sin. So apart from verse 2 of chapter 53, every single verse of the servant song is quoted somewhere in the New Testament. In fact, Isaiah 53 it really is the basis for Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. This is where he takes his material from. So Isaiah writes this prophecy of, of hope and of grace and salvation really at a moment in the history of Judah that's as dark as anything could ever be. There's the prophecy of the the Babylonian captivity, you will be taken away, everything's going to come crashing down, but here is hope. Here is the ultimate in salvation for you, you must keep your eyes fixed upon the Lord. If ever there was a time in, in their history they needed this, it was then. But, you know, so often we like things now. Well, okay, you tell me that this is a problem now, give me the answer so I can get out of it now this answer is not coming for a long time yes they'll return from captivity but Christ is still 700 years away before he comes on the scene and Christ the suffering servant the prophesied one he would not suffer for any evil that he has done he would not suffer for any sin that was his own he would suffer for the sin of others all these things would be laid upon him. The chastening of our well being fell upon him, and it is through his scourgings that we find healing. Now, why does God need to save his people from their sins? Well, this is very important, especially in this context here. Those who heard the words of Isaiah did not think they needed a Savior. They thought they were, they were good. They were God's people. They come from the covenant with Abraham. They were descendants of Abraham. They thought all they needed was a king who could get their stuff together and fight off these other countries and, and really demonstrate who they were. They were God's covenant people. They did not understand that their sin was here, that their sin needed to be atoned for, that the suffering servant needed to come and, and, and do this because they could not earn the favor of of the Lord, look at fifty-three verse eleven. The second half of, of verse eleven. This is my servant. That's the Lord's servant will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. He will bear their iniquities. Understand that this is. There's nothing of of. of physical beauty that would draw us to the suffering servant it is all a beauty that is done in his actions it is all a beauty that is done in in the holiness of god as it is demonstrated here he bore our iniquities what disfigured him on the cross was it just the beatings was it just the flesh torn from his back? Was it just the thorn of crowns? Was it just the crucifixion? Or was it the weight of our sin that also made him ugly, to be, not to be looked upon? You see somebody, perhaps this is an imperfect illustration, you see somebody who's, you know, what, it's not the years, it's the mileage, right? It wears upon their body Sin has a way to wear upon our bodies. Think of the weight of all of our sin placed upon Christ. He had nothing that would draw us to him. No beauty that we would think to look upon him. Yet he is the most beautiful. See, in the atonement, the suffering servant justifies the many. He's prophesied in the Old Testament to come from the nation of Israel, to come from as a descendant of David. The Old Testament says he'll be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah says he'll be born of a virgin. But it's not until he arrives that we will know who he is. And at his baptism, the voice of the father cries out, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Isaiah 42, verse 1 says the same thing that's the prophecy about the lord and his son behold my servant upon whom my chosen one in whom my soul delights i have put my spirit upon him look at what the lord has done acting out of his holiness acting for our salvation let these words fill your mind let these words pierce your heart he was stricken he was afflicted, he was pierced, he was crushed, he was chastened. And who did this? The arm of the Lord did this. It was God's will that this happen. It's not so much that the suffering servant suffered because of stupid men or his own ills. There were, he had no ills, he had no sin, he had no offense. His Heavenly Father did this for us his heavenly father afflicted him god has gone out against his own servant and struck him and crushed him and bruised him for us look at verse 5 chapter 53 he was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and it's by his scourging that we are healed. In Hebrew, this is all cause and effect, okay? There's cause and there's effect. His scourgings, we are healed. His scourgings, we are healed. Now, there are two words I want to make sure that you walk away with when you leave here today. Obviously, there are some other words I want you to remember, but two words in particular. Substitution, satisfaction. Substitution and satisfaction. We find the words substitution here throughout verses 5 and 6. And this harkens back to the language in Leviticus 16. Now you think, uh, oh, gee, Rand, I'm a little rusty on Leviticus. Can you help me with chapter 16? Yeah. There are two goats, one goat, its blood is shed, and its blood is sprinkled on the altar to atone for the sins of the people. The other goat, the chief priest, comes up and what does he do? Lays his hand upon the head of the goat, casts the sin of the people onto that goat, and where does it go? Out in the wilderness, never to be seen or heard from again. God remembers our sins, what? No more. They are as far as the east is, from the west when the Lord cast out that sin this is what he's talking about in Leviticus 16 the sins were gone but that was an imperfect means of it when the suffering servant comes he will bear the sin he will share his blood the weight of all sin will fall upon him and for those who are in Christ the Lord remembers our sin no more when we stand before the Lord he will look at us not as I am but he will look at us through the work of Christ He will see Christ's sacrifice. He will see his substitution. What a beautiful picture of the atonement that we have there. The sin is expiated. The sin is cast out. The wrath of God is dealt with. That sin is never to be brought up again. And it's the Lord who does that work. Remember Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. They're up on the mountain. Abraham's ready to to sacrifice Isaac. And the Lord says, hold it, hold it. I know you would not withhold anything from me. And he turns around and what happens, what just happens to be in the bush? An animal fit for a sacrifice. The Lord provides the sacrifice. The servant dies in my place. He bears my sin. He bears my transgression. He bears my guilt and the consequence of that guilt as well. In Ernest Gordon's book about his time in a Japanese prison camp in World War II, from which two movies were made, Bridge Over the River Kwai and To End All Wars. He writes about the, the atmosphere that had come to be within the prison camp. Now they were forced to build this bridge, this railway and this bridge in the jungle and, and many of them died, they had very little food and he said it became a time where everybody looked out only for themselves. You didn't have the will, you didn't have the desire, you didn't have the energy to care for anybody else. If if your friend dropped when we first got there, we would help them up. By, By this time that he's writing about this event, he says, when our friends dropped, we left them and knew the guards were going to come along afterwards and kill them. So there they were in the courtyard, all lined up, and the guards had done a count, and they were one shovel short. And the guard came out and he ranted and raved and said, if, if that shovel doesn't show up and the person who's not responsible for that shovel doesn't step forward, I'm going to kill you all. And Gordon writes, he looked down and one guy steps forward down at the end of the line. And that guard took a shovel went and went down and beat the guy to death. And the prisoners around that one individual picked him up, went back to the shed where the shovels were and recounted. And there was no miscount. All the shovels were there. But this man took the sin of the entire camp upon himself. And Gordon writes that that everything was changed after that. We began to care for one another again. We we saw the sacrifice that one man made that he took upon himself, our sin, and we were changed, all of us, together. This is the beauty of the suffering servant. He takes upon himself himself a sin that he did not have, a sin that he did not have to bear, but it was his love and care to atone for us. He was our substitution. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And the gospel is not simply that God forgives sin, but that God forgives sin by placing it, imputing it upon the suffering servant And then punishing it. He's rejected for us. He is pierced for us. He is crushed for us. You don't have to understand all the intricacies of the doctrine of substitution. All you have to know is that Christ died for you. And your sin is placed upon him. So not only substitution, but satisfaction. Meaning that the wrath of a holy and righteous God is appeased in the death of his own son. Why would he do that? I mean, look, look at your own heart. God, am I worth the death of your son? Is my salvation worth that? And in a selfish fashion, I think, yes, I am. I'm worth it. I, but really, I know I am not worth it. That's what makes grace, grace. I'm not worth it. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it, but I get it, because Christ has done the work. He bore our griefs. Actually, the word griefs be translated disease. In Matthew, when he talks about Jesus healing men and women of disease, he quotes that verse in Isaiah. So that's it. That's the cost of our redemption. That's the depths to which the suffering servant would go. Christianity is about the provision of a sovereign God who provides for us someone to stand in our stead to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to shed his blood, to die for us, to expiate the wrath of God, to take it upon himself that we might have the joy and the privilege of being called the sons of God. That's beauty. That's real beauty. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many examples for us in society things the world calls beautiful, people, structures, scenes. And and yes, Lord, there is a beauty there. But remind us there is something more beautiful than we can imagine. And that is a love that would bear our sin. That is a love that would take upon himself all of the evil that fills our hearts. And you would be satisfied. Satisfied. Lord, this is not something that simply is done, and we rejoice and we go about our daily lives. This is something that grabs us. This is something that must possess us. If Christ has done this, if the suffering servant has taken upon his upon his person all the weight of our sin, if if the weight of punishment that was deserved for us is placed upon him and our lives are forever changed by that, how then shall we live? Should should we live like the rest of the world? Should we just go about and and say, great, I've got salvation and I've got mine. What about you? No. We need to be different people. People with an eye to the sacrifice people with an eye to what it has caused us to be restored to a relationship with you, that our hearts would be gentle with others, that our hearts would be compassionate, knowing that we were like them at one point. We did not know the things of Christ. We did not understand that. But we would communicate the truth of this sacrifice and do it in gentleness and compassion, but convey it in truth and know the power of the Holy Spirit is behind it. Lord, come upon us today that we now might live in this sacrifice and in this satisfaction, the substitution that Christ is for us. We ask this in his name. Amen.